Good morning again. Going to be in Ruth, and we're going to we're going to wrap it up today in the fourth chapter. We're going to do the whole thing, but to give you you bring you up to speed if you haven't been here, or to give you the little flashback that we've been doing previously in Ruth. What's happened is, as we saw Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their family move to Moab because there was a famine in Bethlehem, the house of bread there because of the famine. Once they got to Moab, things started to look up a little bit, but then Elimelech died. Uh, The boys ended up getting married to Orpah and Ruth. Then they both went ahead and died. Ten years later, Orpah went back to her home in Moab, and Ruth stayed with Naomi. They went home. The town was abuzz with gossip. Is this Naomi who went away full? She's been brought back empty. Naomi told everybody her name means pleasant. She told everybody to call her Mara instead, to call her bitter, because she felt that the Lord had dealt bitterly with her. Then Ruth chanced upon chance, or by a stroke of luck, or if we're reading from a theological perspective, by the hand of the Lord, ended up in the field of Boaz, who just happened to be a kinsman redeemer, one that would be able to rescue Ruth and rescue Naomi from their desperate situation. Then, last week, we looked at Ruth take the initiative and Uh, kind of proposed that Boaz proposed to her, that he become the answer to his own blessing, and that he spread his wing over her, his wing of protection, that indeed he would be the wing of the Lord, if you will. And so that's where we find ourselves. And this morning, we're going to see that the main idea of our text is that only God's loving kindness can lead to fullness. Only God's loving kindness can lead us to fullness. The one big thing that I want you to remember this morning that I would like you to take hold of and to think on throughout the week is that we ought to receive the kindness of the Redeemer. That we ought to receive the kindness of the Redeemer. We're going to work through the text in three parts. We're going to look at a courtroom, a courtship, and a king. Courtroom, courtship, and king. Also, as we work through the story this morning, I hope to show you that Jesus is the true and better Boaz, who redeems us legally, changes us radically, and crowns us as royalty. That Jesus redeems us legally, changes us radically, and crowns us as royalty. I want to show you that this story's primary purpose is to demonstrate not only God's unfailing love towards Ruth, but also his unfailing love towards us, towards you. Would you pray with me this morning? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you're good to us and that you give generously without failing. That each day you give us grace upon grace, and right now we ask for more of that grace, that we might hear you well, that we might submit to your word, and that you might be the Lord of our lives, that you might expose the dark dark corners of our hearts and bring us to confession and to repentance. We ask indeed that your kindness would lead us before your throne. Lord, help us to receive that kindness this morning. Amen. So a courtroom, starting in uh, 18 of chapter 3, we see Naomi reply to Ruth. She says, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. 
For the man will not rest, but will settle, settle the matter today. Which brings us to verse 1 of chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. This is a little funny to me. I don't know if it's funny to you. She says he's not going to rest until it's all done. And the next verse, Boaz sits down. Right? But see, Boaz is doing more than just sitting down here. He's at the city gate. It's not lazy, although it might appear that way. He's being intentional. You see, the, the gate is the, the way by which everybody kind of goes to and from their work. It's a gathering place. Um, it might be kind of the same thing as him, if he wants to catch one of y'all on your way into Charlottesville, going on the end of 151 here where it meets 250 and just waiting at that stop sign until he sees you, right? Or maybe sitting at the end of a subdivision knowing you're going to have to pass out of that way eventually to go to work or wherever you're trying to get to. Maybe if we were more in a city context, he's just hanging out at Starbucks in the morning as everybody comes to get their coffee. But he knows that people are going to be gathering here, and so that's why he's placed himself there. It's a place of high traffic, and almost everybody in the community at one point or another is going to find their way to the city gate. This gate's also a gathering place for citizens of the town. It's where official administration and official business is conducted. See, verse 13 of chapter 3 had left Ruth and us wondering how Boaz would overcome the obstacle to their desire to marry, right? There's a redeemer ahead of Boaz. And here we learn that Boaz is going to deal with this other redeemer by taking it and putting it in a court of law. Boaz is sitting, and this would have been perceived as an official act. Then, just by another stroke of luck, there's some happenstance here. The redeemer that's ahead of Boaz in the proverbial pecking order here, just walks by, just happens to walk by. It's the hand of the Lord again, guiding all the events and all the circumstances together. And upon seeing the unnamed man who remains unnamed, Boaz says, hey, I have some business that we need to attend to. Why don't you sit right here? Next, we see Boaz going about and rounding up enough men to constitute what will amount to a legal assembly. And so he gets 10 of the elders of the town together. They're all at the gate. He has the makings of this courtroom. And then he begins the legal proceedings. He explains why everyone is there, why he's called everyone together. And in verse 3, he says to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And the unnamed man said, I will redeem it. See, the rights to purchase or to redeem the land that had previously belonged to Elimelech is what is at stake here. And I think that Block is helpful in explaining it. He says that issue is not the transfer of ownership of the property, but the acquisition of the right of holding usufruct someone else's property until the next Jubilee year. Accordingly, Naomi's action was not to sell the land that belonged to her deceased husband Elimelech. It was not hers to sell. Because by law, ownership of the land would be transferred to the nearest relative. What she had done was authorize the court to give it in usufruct, which just means it's a legal right of using and enjoying the fruits or profits of something belonging to someone else. 
I'm not even sure I'm saying the word right. It's a legal term, right? So they're, they're, he, whoever redeems this land has it for a portion of time and basically gets to reap all the benefits without having to really pour a whole lot into it. And the Redeemer has the first claim on that. And so this unnamed guy thinks, you know what? I would love some benefit from Elimelech's land. I would love to profit from it, so I'll purchase it. I'll redeem it. Boaz here has shrewdly left out the fact that the land comes along with little more than he first let on. That indeed, Ruth comes along with the land and that she is a Moabite. And so Boaz responds to the man who says, I'll redeem it. Boaz responds and says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the deceased, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now, we don't have any textual documentation, but it is possible and perhaps even likely that according to Israelite custom, not the law, just the social customs, in cases where there is no unmarried brother, the principle of leveret obligation was extended in accordance with the pecking order of the inheritance law. Accordingly, when Boaz challenges the Redeemer to establish the name of the dead, he's not appealing to the letter of the law, but to its spirit. Neither man was legally bound by Deuteronomy 25 or any other area of Scripture to take on Ruth with the land. But this does not eliminate a moral obligation. Boaz is prepared to operate on the grounds where Ruth comes as a package deal, where he's going to step in and perform the rites of leveret marriage along with taking the land. He's going to perpetuate the name of the dead. And so the question is, will this other redeemer be willing to do the same? And so the letter of the law doesn't require that Ruth and the perpetuation of Malone's line through her come with the land. But the intent of the law certainly does. And so the unnamed man can't really save face and take the land without Ruth because that just looks bad. And what he does is quickly backs up and he says, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself for I cannot redeem it. Maybe he's not interested in taking on another wife. Maybe he doesn't care for Moabites or for Ruth. But one thing is sure, he's no longer interested in the land. He doesn't want to perpetuate the name of the dead. He wants to perpetuate his own house. You see, had the unnamed man purchased or redeemed the land along with Ruth, it would have meant that it came at somewhat of a loss to his own inheritance would have meant that he put money in and didn't necessarily get money back because the land never truly would have been his. It would have been the son of Ruth. It seemed a good deal at first, but turned out not to be a great deal for him. Once Boaz announces that Ruth be taken on as a wife and that the Redeemer take on the role of lever, the offer is much less appealing. Thus, the unnamed man realized that he's not really going to be gaining from the transaction. And so he tells Boaz to redeem it in his stead. Verse 7, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, You are witnesses this day. 
that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malone. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malone, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are all witnesses this day. So the unnamed man takes off his sandal and he hands it to Boaz. It's the cultural equivalent of shaking hands or maybe now people pound it every once in a while. So they're just agreeing to this business deal. Boaz takes the sandal, I imagine, holds it up to make sure that everyone acknowledges that they are witnesses to the transaction, that the deal is done. I do think we can learn from Boaz a little bit here. See, he doesn't sacrifice his integrity in order to get what he wants. He acts according to the law. He does so with shrewdness and with tact. I think it shows us that we ought not try to circumvent um, any, any legality or circumvent any morality in order to attempt to bring about our desired results in a particular situation. But rather, we should submit to the law and work inside its parameters. This might mean for us that things don't work out how we would have them. But it does mean that we honor God by living righteously. Further, we can know that Jesus is master over history, and so we can trust in his sovereignty even when the circumstances appear grim. Indeed, as Paul says, we can face all circumstances because Jesus is our strength and our joy. And even though circumstances change, Jesus' love does not. Our position of being in Christ does not change. So there's no need to compromise our integrity. There's no need to compromise your morality to try and take hold of what you want. Have you ever compromised your integrity to get what you wanted? Secondly, we see Boaz redeem Ruth out of his loving kindness. This word kindness shows up throughout the book of Ruth, and I think that it's because this theme of kindness is central to the book's message. The big question of the book of Ruth is this. Is God kind? Is God loving? And the answer we have at the end of the book is a resounding yes. Of course he's loving. Of course he's kind. I bring it up here because Boaz is meant to show us an example of kindness and what it looks like to love thy neighbor as thyself. The word for kindness used in Ruth in Hebrew is chesed. It's like this guttural sound. It's like a hate there. It's a chesed you have on your outline. Chesed because it kind of comes out like that. You can try it later. I don't have enough phlegm to quite work it out right now. But it's a powerful word, and it carries within itself the ideas of mercy and of loyalty and of goodness and of faithfulness and steadfastness, kindness, and love. It's the word used to speak of God's love throughout the Old Testament. In fact, it's the word used to speak of God's love in the psalm we read, right? Psalm 136. It's his steadfast love that endures forever. It's his kindness that endures forever, his loving kindness. We might just use the word love as an English equivalent. However, that word has been hijacked so that everything is loved these days. I love football. I love my phone. I love my fantasy novels. I love Jamba Juice. I love Star Wars. I love tacos. Right? But that's not the sense that the word is used here. It has much more weight to it. It's loving kindness. It's enduring kindness. It's a covenant love. 
And Boaz is an example of kesed, of loving kindness, of the type of love that we ought to strive to show one another, the type of love that we ought to seek to demonstrate to our neighbor. Friends, we ought to love others. Boaz also points us to Jesus, who is the true and better Boaz. Just as Boaz legally redeems Ruth, Jesus legally redeems us. You see, he pays the penalty for our sin and stands in as our substitute. He takes the wrath of God that was reserved for us that we had earned. And he dies the death we should have died. Theological term for this is penal substitutionary atonement probably heard me say it before and break it down before, but we do so again because it's very important. Jesus takes our penalty. He acts as our substitute and he atones for our sin, pays for our sin. Died the death we should have died. And he did so that he might redeem us legally, that God might be both merciful and just because a just God must punish sin. And he does so for those that are in Christ on the cross. Lest he act contrary to his divine nature. And he would not. He worked inside the parameters of his character. Inside the parameters of the law. At the cross we see God's justice and his mercy simultaneously upheld. And it's beautiful and it's scandalous. We're still in this courtroom setting in verse 11 and we read, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and like Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. The people here primarily are acknowledging their role as witnesses. I like to imagine they all have t-shirts that say witness on them. Uh, because I'm a Cavaliers fan in basketball, if you remember not too far back, they, everybody used to wear the, the shirt that said witness on it to the games. Maybe they'll start doing that again. feels good to have LeBron back on the team, by the way, for anybody that likes NBA, which might just be me. I don't know. But uh, So they all have their witness t-shirts on. They're affirming the transaction. They're affirming what has taken place. But also notice what else they do. They, make, they pronounce a blessing. I mean, they say some really nice things. It's not just like, hey, I hope things go well with her. Great, she's with Boaz. No, they ask that the Lord make Ruth like Rachel and like Leah. We know who Rachel and Leah are. They're from Genesis. They're matriarchs of Israel. Without Rachel and Leah, there is no Israel. They're asking God to make this foreigner, this Moabite, like these women that exemplify Israel. They're asking God to make Ruth like one of them. They're fully accepting Ruth as one of their own. Also note this. Both Rachel and Leah were barren until God opened up their wombs. Now, this might not have occurred to you as you've read through Ruth. But it seems that likewise, Ruth had been barren. After all, she'd been married for 10 years and there were no children, no heir. This isn't a time in history where people just choose not to have kids. You have kids at this time in history, unless you're unable to. After 10 years, Ruth had none. No children, no heir. 
The blessing pronounced by the people not only asks the Lord to open up Ruth's womb and to give her a child, but that through that child he continued to build the house of Israel in the same way that he built it through Rachel and Leah. They want God to make Boaz's house strong and prominent. I mean, this is amazing. Ruth is a Moabite, an outsider. I think the people's acceptance of this Moabite stunning on a number of levels. Ruth had come to Israel as an outsider and now is accepted as an insider, as a full member. I think likewise, we all prior to knowing Jesus are outsiders. It's only our sin rather than our skin is what separates us from being insiders, from being included in God's people. Sin, if you're unfamiliar with the term, simply means building the meaning of our lives on anything other than God. It's ultimately a profound self-centeredness. It means we do things our own way instead of God's way, which results in evil, suffering, brokenness, things like these. No one is perfect, and so all of us find ourselves outside of God's kingdom, outside of his kingdom, lost in our sins under the judgment of God, which is just unless we have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Just like Ruth was, outsiders. But once we confess Jesus as Lord with our mouths and submit to his lordship with our hearts, we are united to him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And as a consequence, we are made insiders. But not just insiders. We are made children of God, children of promise. Jesus blesses us and calls us his own. Jesus became an outsider so that we could be insiders. Like Jesus and the witnesses here, we should love strangers. We should love outsiders. We should try to bring them into the family. Especially because we know what it is to be outside and separated from the love of God. Demonstrate love to others. This covenant love. Friends, receive the kindness of the Redeemer and extend that love to others. Finally, we move from the courtroom to the courtship in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Right away, the blessing is fulfilled. God gives Boaz and Ruth a son. This is a huge deal. In the ancient world, barrenness was often viewed as a curse from God. But Ruth's barrenness proves a blessing in the long run. After all, had she not been barren, her and Naomi would likely have never returned to Israel. She certainly wouldn't have married Boaz. And we still don't know just who this child will be. The women rejoice in verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in all of Israel. The people recognize immediately that God has been at work, that he has never left Naomi. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. 
Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nanny. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Naomi, who had said, Call me bitter, is now made infinitely pleasant. She who thought herself full and found herself empty is given fullness that runs over the brim of her cup. Naomi must be beaming with joy. Imagine after all the deaths she had seen, all the hunger, all the doubt, all the anxiety, all the sleepless nights, finally she holds in her lap her grandson. Obed sleeps easily in her lap. I imagine tears of joy streamed down her cheeks as she realized the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob was her God and he had not left her or forsaken her. Imagine how her heart must have left as she realized that God has remembered her and redeemed her through Boaz and through Ruth and through Obed in this temporary circumstance, but also eternally by his kindness. What joy! As the ladies of the town say in verse 14, Ruth is better for Naomi than seven sons. The reference to seven sons is conventional. This just reflects that in ancient Israel, the ideal family consisted of seven sons. That was the perfect family. And so it's just an amazing affirmation of the character of Ruth. All of Bethlehem knew that she was a noble woman. But these women place her value above seven sons. What an extraordinary compensation for two sons. Naomi had been compensated greatly. She had been given more than the perfect family. She'd been given a Moabite woman who turned out to be an insider through whom Jesse would come, through whom David would come. God radically changes the lives of Ruth and of Naomi and uses that which they thought was terrible. He uses their suffering to bring about marvelous blessing. They've been snatched from the teeth of poverty and set into the financial security provided by Boaz. Ruth and Naomi have been gathered under the wings of Boaz, under the wing of the Lord. Likewise, God has radically changed us, those that are united to Jesus by faith. He's rescued us from our condition of being the walking dead. He's breathed into us the breath of life. And made us alive together with Christ. He's taken us out from under the condemnation that our sin deserves. And given to us the security and peace that we do not deserve. Again we see the beautiful scandalous cross. Again we're confronted with the good news about the bad news of sin. Which is that Jesus has dealt with the bad news. And all we have to do to share in the good news. Is trust in his victory. Trust in him. Jesus legally redeems us, changes us radically, and he crowns us as royalty with a righteousness not our own, but his own. Jesus gives us life through his death and resurrection. You see, eternity runs in our veins because it's spilled from his veins. Friends, I pray that we would all be changed radically by placing our faith and our trust in Jesus 
pray that all men and all women here this morning would receive the kindness of the Redeemer. Obed isn't just Naomi's grandson, though. His birth won't just change her life and Ruth's life, but it'll change the course of history forever. Look at the second part of verse 16, the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. And Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Obed will father Jesse, who will father David, who will be the king of Israel, the king that Israel has waited on for such a long time. He will be a good king. This is kind of a big deal. And from David's line will come the king of kings will come Jesus. The book of Matthew opens this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah, the father of Perez and Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram and Ram, the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph. I'm not going to read all the names, but we'll drop down to the conclusion in verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. King Jesus comes from this line that was almost extinct. It comes from the womb of Ruth and the loins of Boaz. The king who wore a crown of thorns that he might give us a crown of righteousness came from this story, came from Obed, this grandson of Naomi. Indeed, the house of Israel was built to be stronger than those pronouncing the blessing ever imagined. Indeed, Ruth is a matriarch of Israel. Jesus has made us right with God. He's called us children of God. But not only children, but co-heirs with himself. Jesus has allowed us to inherit all the riches that are his own along with him. So that we might be consumed in the treasure of fellowship with God. See, Jesus has redeemed us legally. He's changed us radically. And he's crowned us as royalty. With his righteousness. So to answer the question of the book of Ruth. Is God kind? Yes. Friends receive the kindness. Of the redeemer. 